0: Uh, come back to that today, because I mentioned last week was a bit of a part one, and I want to drill down into some of the um, nuances and distinctions that are important through this passage. So I'm just going to read the passage again, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. This comes about a third of the way through the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of early Christians in Corinth, and he's beginning to move into rubber meets the road ethical um, issues related to things like Uh, How do we solve disputes and what do we do about people uh, who are single and want to get married or people who are married and want to get divorced and issues around uh, embodied humanity and human sexuality. And this comes on the tail end of him trying to help them understand that the church is to be a place that is separate from the world in the sense that we pattern our lives differently around different priorities not just the priorities that our culture says, oh, this is what's important, and we reflexively say, okay. We evaluate those priorities through the word of God. Those which align, great. Those which don't, we move away from. So Paul writes, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And we talked last week that really verse 11 is the major takeaway that Paul is saying, you used to belong Uh, You used to live in sin. And I know maybe for two generations ago, living in sin meant that you were living together in a home um, before you were married and being sexually active. But there's a more expansive understanding that your identity was rooted in living under the power and domination of sin. And Paul says, but now you are in Christ and you have a new identity. And it's not that those things don't tempt you anymore. It's not even that you might not struggle with those things anymore, but you are moving away from them. Because when we turn our lives over to Christ, God begins to establish a desire in us to move towards Christ-likeness and holiness. Um, now, one of the things on this list, the malakoi arsenikotai, which gets translated in different ways, um, but usually refers to the passive and uh, uh, passive and active partner in a homosexual uh, uh, sex act. Malakoi is soft and... Or Sena is man, arson, Kortoi, better. Um, That's where the record scratch can happen for a lot of people in our culture and in our churches as well. Because the immediate question is, well, wait a second, what about LGB uh, people? Um, I think most of us, I would imagine, I'd like to hope that we'd be very comfortable labeling everything else on this list as wrongdoing or wicked. But we might hesitate when it comes to saying that all same-sex relationships are sinful, right? We might think, well, what about same-sex marriages? What about two people who are sincerely and authentically committed to each other? They're devoting themselves to one another. That might be difficult for us to make the leap to say, is that wicked? Is that wrongdoing? Is that on the same level as someone who is a swindler, which again, we talked about how violent that word actually is, a plunderer. And it's on this point that sort of progressive theologies have emerged, which have sought to create a case for the inclusion and acceptance of committed same-sex partnerships within churches. So this morning, I just want to make clear what our response is Uh, What my response is as a pastor, I can't speak for everybody here, but I can speak for our denominational family, the Evangelical Covenant Church of Canada, and the larger uh, family of the Evangelical Covenant Churches. But I think it's important to frame this conversation with two categories of response. Because when we say, how do we respond to this, there's not just one response, there's always two. For any issue that we're talking about, there's the response of what are our our theological convictions. And then there's the relational response of how do we express those convictions in the context of our relationships, uh, our families, our friendships, our workplaces. Right? Every issue has these two dimensions. We want to understand what do we believe about these things? What does the Bible teach? and get clarity on that, and come to a conviction, but then figure out how to best apply and express that conviction. Because like we talked about last week, it's very possible to hold a theologically correct position on something, but express it in a way that is immature, abusive, unwise, um, unnecessarily contentious. So what we want to do is we want to get clarity, and we want to be precise on both the theological level and how it's best to express the posture that we want to take as it relates to this issue. Um, What happens if we just worry about our convictions and don't care about how our posture relationally to people around us? What's the result? You dismiss people, right? You essentially say, you abstract the truths and say, I don't care about how I'm delivering these things. I don't care about, I, I'm, just, I'm just tough love, straight talk, right? We can kind of baptize it and make it sound courageous to just be like, boom, here we go. Here's the truth, can't handle it because you have a problem with the truth. It's like, no, you're just a jerk. So, you know, you got to soften things a little bit. But what happens if you don't, you spend an inordinate amount of energy and time for the right reasons to be very careful how you, Present, express, explain your view, and really don't uh, worry or concern yourself with getting clarity on your actual convictions. What's the cost there? What's that? Yeah, maybe a hypocrite. I mean, you know, or but cer- I mean certainly you don't have a lot of integrity in the sense that you're if you have these convictions or you want them, you should know how to express them, right? Like if we are simply worried about how to make sure other people feel comfortable all the time, that's a kind of idolatry, right? Like it's sort of like saying, yeah, exactly. You're you're, you're, you're peacekeeping. You're saying I'm going to do whatever it takes to not ruffle anything here. And so you're kind of idolizing being a people-pleaser or, um, yeah, peacekeeping. Yeah, You said it well, Chad, perfectly. And so what we want to do is we want to avoid both of those extremes. Now, this, this issue of LGB inclusion um, in the church, and, I, and I'm kind of intentionally omitting the T, because that's kind of like a separate issue, the um, trans issue, and we'll get to that in the coming weeks. Um, but this issue around same-sex marriage in the church It's actually really easy if you fall on one of the two extremes. If you lean in a really fundamentalist direction, this issue is easy. Just have a very, um, in some cases, unsophisticated black-and-white reading of the Bible. Here it is, here's the truth. We throw it in front of people, we present it, and then we let them grapple with it. We don't really worry about relational posture. Dealing with this issue on the progressive side is very, very easy. We lean heavily into making sure that everything that we say and everything how we say it is couched in the most ex- um, inclusive, affirming language possible, even if it means ignoring or rejecting huge parts of the Bible out of hand. So if you're a part of those two extremes, it's actually really easy to address this issue. I mean, I'm using "address" like this because I don't think you're actually addressing it. I think you have to hold both of these points and tension. What's your conviction and how do you express it in a way that's mature? Um, But to hold a distinctively evangelical view, and I'm using that word in a classic sense, because evangelicals distance themselves from fundamentalists And as fundamentalism rise in the 1920s. Evangelicals distance themselves from that kind of black and white reading and the posture of being anti-everything. I'm a fundamentalist because I'm against this, I'm against this, I'm against this. But evangelicals also distance themselves from progressive and liberal theologies that essentially were just parroting the loudest talking points of the culture and then just ignoring or in some cases even rejecting anything that comes close to honoring god at honoring the bible as the word of god and so to hold a distinctively and biblical evangelical view is pretty demanding and you know that if you've gone down this road because we're trying to hold a robust theology of human sexuality and its implications for Christians, while holding on to a posture of care. And that's tricky across a number of topics and situations and issues today. So let me explain to you the Covenant's uh, stance on this. And probably the easiest way to think about it is that we believe we have a posture and we have a stance of embracing, but not affirming. So we are embracing and not affirming. We have a whole suite of resources, podcasts, books, articles for uh, people young and old, new to faith, who want to do a massive deep dive into the exegetical foundations of this debate on covchurchorg embrace. It's a massive suite of resources. It's being built all the time. It's really good. And I want to read to you what the purpose of those suite of resources is. So embrace is a suite of human sexuality discipleship resources and learning experiences that are in harmony with the adopted position of the evangelical church, the center of which is faithfulness and heterosexual marriage, celibacy and singleness, and those two constitute the Christian standard. Now a special emphasis on embrace is equipping our church to flourish in love for LGBTQ plus individuals and couples and families and communities. So you hear that, that holding these two tensions. We want to have a posture of care and support while having a convictional line that says, this is what we believe and this is why. But we want to make sure we're showing up in our relationships in as gracious and caring a way as possible. But notice something else that was important about that language. It's a human sexuality discipleship resource. And that's important because when you talk about discipleship, you're actually talking about a path. And what that means is we believe as a church, there is a right path through which to understand and express human sexuality. There's a God-honoring path. And what we're all learning to do, every one of us, is to understand what is that path and what are the implications for me to be faithful to walking that path. So we don't baptize as a church any consensual sexual act in the name of acceptance. And part of the reason that we don't do that, so for example, in the uh, sort of the sex positive movement today, it's kind of like, as long as there's consent, then no one should judge, uh, then as long as basic consent is respected by all the parties involved, whether it's two or 12 or whatever the the makeup is, consent is the bottom line. It's the only thing that should matter. But Christians for 2000 years have always believed that what makes sex good and life-giving and deeply pleasurable and pleasurable in a generative way, that it generates connection and life and children and um, kind of renews the marriage covenant involves a way higher bar than sex simply being not rape. So as a pastor of the Evangelical Covenant Church, I am committed to teaching and leading people into discipleship in the area of human sexuality. And that's not for LGBTQ individuals. That's for everybody. All of us are called, as we're gonna find out in First Corinthians, to honor God with our body. And part of that embodied calling and demand is our sexuality. So our approach, or my approach pastorally, to sexual discipleship falls into two sort of major uh, categories. We want to encourage and strengthen and enhance passion and connection and intimacy within marriages between a man and a woman while resourcing everyone else who is not in that situation for whatever reason. They find themselves in a season of singleness at whatever stage of life for whatever reason to live into celibacy and devotion to Christ. That's sort of the two practical two pronged approach. I want to explain what the theological convictions are that shape this position. I want to explain what the theological convictions are that shape this position without going into a massive six-month deep dive into all the minutiae on this topic. I've started putting resources in our newsletter that are short, concise, um, and those are for Um, those are there for those of you who want to really, really go deep or you want to follow up with me and get particular stuff, but there are months and months worth of stuff that we could talk about. And I don't want to get bogged down in it. I hope that doesn't sound, uh, cowardly. Um, it's just, it's just practical. There are lots of resources for you to, um, kind of go to those deeper levels. And I'm happy to curate some of those resources for you through the Embrace, uh, pathway. But there are scholars and pastors and authors out there who do a way better job of just consolidating all this information. Probably one of the best is Dr. Preston Sprinkle's um, Center for Faith and Sexuality and Gender, which we are contracted with um, as um, Covenant Church. We do a lot of work with them. They devote themselves full time to thinking through these issues, creating resources for uh, teens and parents and families and churches and do an awesome job of really um, being careful and thoughtful around holding these tension points together. Theological biblical conviction with care and support, um, especially to those of us with LGBTQ family members, friends, co-workers, uh, loved ones, and those maybe struggling with same-sex attraction or issues of identity ourselves. I think it's fair to say, I do I'm not sure where, where people are at in this conversation, but I want you to know my perspective pastorally is that since this issue, broadly speaking, has come into the limelight and been a source of uh, pretty consistent conversation in theological and pastoral circles over the last 15 years, tons of very serious, thoughtful, careful study has been done on both sides. Some saying we need to stay with the traditional Orthodox view, marriage, man and a woman, that's it. Others saying, no, there's room for new expressions of faithfulness and monogamy. And I would argue that at this point, the, the fully affirming position that says, no, the church should welcome in um, gay marriage and different expressions of what it means to be married. I would say those views both, well, theologically and philosophically have been found wanting um, I'd be so bold as to say you do your homework, you look into the best arguments on both sides, and you I don't think you're going to end up being able to say scripturally you can ground this idea that there's, marriage is anything other than a man, one man and one woman. Um, anything else just doesn't have integrity, biblically speaking. Um, I think most churches have tackled this issue from every angle, and again, that's part of my reason why I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on this because if, if this is a grapple point for you, I'll walk with you through it and we can talk and I'll give you best resources on both sides. But I've done enough homework over the last 15 years to feel pretty convictionally settled in the covenant's view and that's why I've stayed in the covenant and continue to promote its approach. I think it's fair to say the Bible's teaching is clear and unanimous on the issue of what does a faithful, life-giving, God-honoring sexuality, how is that expressed? And the fastest way, the most, the easiest way, because we can get into discussions of what does Malakoi mean? What does our mean? And you can get into the weeds about, well, is it just exploitative sexual relationship? Or, and those are interesting, important conversations on one level. But we can cut through a lot of that by just recognizing there's only two from old to new, from Genesis to the maps at the back of your Bible. There's only two broad categories of the way that we are in or out of sexual integrity. Pornoia, which is the Greek word for porno. And it doesn't mean pornography like we would think about it today. It's a catch-all term that simply means any sexual activity, any sexual play, any sexual expression outside of a marriage covenant. doesn't matter whether it's heterosexual, homosexual, uh, two people, 15 people, it doesn't matter. It's all under the category of pornoia. And it's always condemned. The only other category we have is a man and a woman in marriage and covenant faithfulness. And then applying scriptures like, what does it mean to love? What does it mean to serve one another? What does it mean to um, uh, love my neighbor as myself? And to put those through the lens of our body and our sexualities as it relates to a marriage between a man and a woman. Now, there are some times in the Old Testament where polygamy was permitted and this is usually actually for the sake of uh, and safety of women at that time, but it's clearly never God's ideal. When Jesus is pressed on God's design for marriage, because there's lots of discussions about divorce and what does it look like? And people are trying to trip him up about, well, what if you had a brother and you know, he was married, but then he died and his, uh, the wife goes to the other brother and then he dies. And this happens like who, in the afterlife. Who, who's Who's she going to be married to, Jesus? Oh, gotcha question. Jesus says, haven't you read that at the beginning, he's referencing Genesis 1 and 2, God made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're actually one. And therefore what God has joined together, let no one separate. And you can look, but you're going to find that scripture only ever speaks of marriage, depicts marriage, or instructs regarding marriage using the framework of one man and one woman in the New Testament. So while our culture has decided to redefine marriage, the church should not embrace that redefinition of marriage to simply be two people who are committed to each other any more than you should embrace the current redefinition of adultery. Are you guys familiar with the current redefinition of adultery? Adultery is non-monogamous, extracurricular sexual activity. So if me and my wife decide that I or her or both of us given certain parameters, can have a sexual relationship outside of our marriage that's not adultery because adultery is about betrayal so as long as there's consent and there's some boundaries that both people are comfortable with um non-monogamous consensually non-monogamous marriages like what's that that's not hurting anybody and the bible doesn't talk about adultery as simply a betrayal Adultery is just a word used for any sexual engagement with someone who is not your spouse. It doesn't actually matter what the context is. And it doesn't matter whether I or my wife were comfortable with it. It would still be adultery. We should not allow the dominant culture around us who now is definitely moving in a very pagan direction to reform or alter what God has made really clear is both an issue of holiness and Christian maturity and flourishing. Scripture is our authority in our lives, not the culture, not the newest ideology. We don't ignore all those things, but we look at them and we evaluate them through Scripture not the other way around. We don't start on the premise that, well, consensual non-monogamy, yeah, that kind of sounds good. Do I see any, you know, how, how does scripture, how can I get scripture to fit in with that view? Because I kind of like this view. I like the view that, let's say, looking at pornography, as long as it's ethically sourced and it's, um, oh, that's, I mean, you laugh, that's that's language, ethical pornography. Um, and maybe we don't use it in a way that is, uh, It generates addiction, so we're kind of in control of it. But, like, that's not wrong, right? If two people are kind of like, yeah, we use this to... It's like, no, we don't start on the world's premise. that the only thing that really matters is consent, we actually start with scripture. And again, that's a demand that we all face, not just gay Christians, uh, not just people who struggle with same-sex attraction. It's all of us. So that's our theological, convictional sexuality can be expressed in a generative, beautiful way, God-honoring way within a one-man, one-woman marriage. All other sexual expressions are pornoia, and they need to be turned from if you are serious about following God. We're not talking about people. This isn't um, an issue in terms of like people outside the church. Remember 1 Corinthians 5? Not my job to judge people outside the church. We're talking about people who have said, I want to give my life to Jesus. I've baptized. My old way of life is going down. I'm now up. I'm new life in Christ. How do I live? That's what we're talking about. We now live with the conviction that there are two arenas for your sexuality, celibacy and singleness and loving, committed, gracious, caring, pleasurable sex within marriage. So what's our pastoral approach? What are the key principles that we as a covenant church hold out? While the theological piece around human sexuality, again, I would argue is pretty much established at this point. I think we Christians have a really hard time is figuring out, but like, okay, I think I believe this, but I'm uncomfortable believing it because I don't know what it commits me to. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be like one of those fundamentalists and someone who doesn't listen to people and someone who, um, we, we know stories of people who have, kids who've grown up in the church and faced tremendous abuse and mistreatment. Uh, because they were gay. And we don't want to be that kind of church, those kinds of Christians. And that's wonderful. So we struggle with, okay, what does holding this view mean in terms of how do I talk about these things with my kids? How do I, what do I do with my family members who are confidently moving in this direction? How do we express these convictions in a way that actually isn't tainted at all by any contempt, any dehumanization, any desire to demean or abuse people? Three broad principles. We express these views with as much gentleness and respect as possible. First Peter 3.15 says, in your hearts, as Christians, this is your heart, in your heart, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer for those who ask you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If someone listens to this recording and then puts an op-ed in the Nelson Star and says, Jeff is a homophobe, he's a bigot, he's inciting uh, violence and hatred towards gay people, I would hope that the gay people in my life People who are uh, people that I know, uh, friends who are uh, in a gay relationship or married, that they would be able to say, I don't agree with Jeff's views, but I have never once believed that Jeff actually loathes me, hates me, that he's got some, (laughs) like he is, he cares about me and has served me and our family. And I can't, there's nothing homophobic about Jeff. The next thing we wanna do is we always wanna remember our calling to speak the truth in love. Those two tension points, conviction and posture. Ephesians says, as we speak the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect mature, the mature body in him who, uh, who is the head, that is Christ. So we don't become mature if we just speak truth to people, no love, just truth, 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 straight truth, boom, no. And we don't become mature if we're just like, love, 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 don't worry really about the truth. It's just like, everyone get along, peacekeeping, 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 peacekeeping. That's not maturity. Maturity on any issue is thoughtful, careful analysis of what the scripture says, thoughtful, careful analysis on how do we bring this to bear in the world with integrity, but also with care, and with as much love and respect as possible. And lastly, grace and truth. We're told in John that when Jesus, the eternal uh, son of God becomes human, takes on flesh, he is full of grace and truth. That defines Jesus' ministry. He's full of grace and truth. He holds this tension well. He's not a people pleaser. You you have to ignore most of the Gospels to arrive at the idea that Jesus was just a nice guy telling us we should love each other. I mean, I'm I'm not, you know, I just read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It won't take you very long. You You can get through those, even at a slow and steady pace in like a month or a month and a half. Jesus says things that are hard and difficult and demanding, especially for those who want to follow him. But there's always a posture of grace and love there. Okay. Let's rapid fire some FAQs. These are not the only frequently asked questions that I get or that I hear coming up for this issue, but I think they're important. You guys okay with five more minutes? Yeah. Does this passage listing all these sins mean that all gay people are going to hell? No. Because this passage is saying those who are in sin will be separated from God forever. Those who are in Christ are safe and secure. And there are many Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction and maybe even fall back into patterns of expressing their sexuality, like many heterosexuals do, as Christians. They make mistakes, they backslide, they go through seasons. But fundamentally, no one is sent to hell because they are gay. No one gets to heaven because they are heterosexual. Christ is the gate. Christ is the savior. All who call upon him and turn from sinful, selfish, self-centered living and throw their lot in with him will be saved. Does this mean that if you're a Christian, you know, Paul says, you know, many who have sex with men, and then he says, that's what some of you were. So does that mean if you become a real Christian, like if you're really born again and you have same-sex desires, that God will change that. You You were gay, but then you will become not, you'll become heterosexual. And the short answer to that is that is not how we, need to read this passage. There are some Christians who do say, I feel like I was delivered from same-sex attraction, but the vast majority say, I still have that, what we would call orientation, but I've decided to channel it into celibacy and devotion to Christ. And sometimes the church made it sound like you had to, if you were really saved, God would make you heterosexual, as opposed to saying, no, the biblical standard is, if you are in Christ, you either get married to someone of the opposite sex, or you pursue celibacy and singleness. But there's nothing there about how God's going to take away. Um, if you uh, have a problem with lust before you become a Christian, you will probably struggle, hopefully in an increasingly less degree for the rest of your life. But pornography might be a particular um, weak temptation point for you for the rest of your life. So God's not just going to like magically make things disappear in most cases. We still pursue holiness, though. Does this mean that the church, when we have these vice lists, these particular sins, does this mean that we should emphasize that being gay is particularly sinful? And again, I think we'd have to be really careful here. The church has done a lot of damage, especially fundamentalist churches, highlighting certain sins and framing it as if there's, this is the unforgivable sin. And we actually have passages in the Bible where God makes it clear there is a hierarchy of sin and there are certain sins that God hates. Proverbs 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable. Haughty eyes, not like H-O-T-T-Y, H-A-U-G-H-T-Y, haughty like I'm better than you, I'm prideful, I'm looking down on other people, I, I get to live my life on my terms. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who, store, who store, um, stirs up conflict within a community. Those are the sins that God like, hates. Notice what isn't on that list. That doesn't mean that things not on the list don't matter, but we do a disservice when we... Um, highlight maybe all sexual sins and talk about those as if that would be the worst thing in the world. When God's like, actually, if you're a person in your church that is just constantly being combative and divisive, that's way worse, way worse. Does this passage or passages like it that reinforce a traditional orthodox position on human sexuality and marriage do these commit me to hating or mistrusting or mistreating LGBT people? No. There's nothing in this passage or any other passage in the New Testament which justifies cultivating hatred, mistreatment, and violence towards gay people. There's just nothing. The strongest language you get in 1 Corinthians 5, which is if there's anybody in a sinful pattern that people are trying to confront gently and it still escalates and they're like, Nope, there's no problem here. No problem here. No, I'm verbally abusive. No problem. No problem. No problem. Then at some point you ask them to leave the church because they're not humble and open enough to just cooperate. They're, they're being what we would call a perpetual ongoing toxic influence because they're not willing to take any responsibility for their abusive and destructive ac- actions. Hasn't this passage been used to justify hatred and violence towards gay people? Yep. But again, read your Bibles. There's nothing in the passage or any other passage in the New Testament which justifies cultivating hatred, mistreatment, and violence towards gay people. That is people who, for whatever reason, start with genuine vitriol towards gay people and then look in the Bible where they can find, oh, this works, this works, this works, now I'm justifying my hatred. But if we start with scripture and the whole story of scripture, you're never going to have the end result be. And so in these cases, you bully, mistreat, and you um, abuse these people. In fact, you go all the way to the end, right, right, right down. And Jesus says, okay, if you ever come up with someone who you honestly could categorize as your enemy, what do you do? You love them. You serve them. You go the extra mile. You actually don't give in to the temptation that says, oh, this person is too far gone in this area. And so that allows me to take any restraints off of abusive language, abusive behavior, mistreatment. No. Here's another thing. I know many same-sex couples that are Christians and they aren't bothered by this decision. I see videos of this. I have conversations with them. What does this mean? Like if it was a sin that was wrong, how can you have two people who say, I'm born again, I'm Christian, I'm same-sex attracted, and because I want to be monogamous and faithful, I'm not trying to hurt anybody, but I, I, we've prayed about it, we've processed, we've done the homework, and we just disagree that you know we land in a different place than Jeff. Um, what does that mean? And pastorally, I would say, I, I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means, other than the passage 1st Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 starts with, don't be deceived. It's possible to be deceived. I've talked to Christians who are like, uh, yeah, I I, I mean, I've talked to Christians who would say, I've kind of, I use pornography in sort of like a controlled strategic way and I only do certain kinds and I'm at peace with it. I've prayed about it and don't really feel any conviction. I mean, as a pastor, I'm not going to say, oh, well, if you don't feel conviction, it's, it's fine then. I mean, I still have to, if you're asking me, again, if you're just a random person, but if you're asking me, what do you think about that? I would say, you're involved in pornoia, so you should not be. Like, you need to turn from that. If I don't feel any conviction about it. That, that's sort of neither here nor there. Scripture makes it clear. If I don't feel convicted about stealing from the grocery store because times are tough and whatever they don't they don't really miss it i'll just steal and provide for my family but i've justified it to myself It doesn't make the stealing a non-issue to god it just means that i've seared my own conscience and said well in this area i'm just deciding how to live i lean towards being affirming at least in some circumstances am i still welcome at this church Absolutely. As long as you understand and respect the fact that our theological convictions are not up for debate. This is our discerned position within the Evangelical Covenant Church, and that means we've landed here for many reasons. We have resources that explain that, but, and I, I'm not interested in fixating on this issue the way that many churches have for 10 or 15 or 20 years to the complete detriment of almost every other ministry and mission in the church. It can just grind things to a halt. Um, If being in a same-sex affirming church is super important to you, then we should help you transition somewhere else. Because we want to hold to certain theological convictions and then learn together what it is to have a posture of grace and love and care. But as long as I'm your pastor, I'm not really interested in, um, I don't want this to sound, how do I... I'm not interested in sort of keeping coming back to the basics of like, well, does the Bible really, te- like I'm settled on it. Our denomination settled on it. I'll give you resources. I'll be patient with you. If you're like, oh, what about this? I'm not going to shut you down. I'll give you the resources. We'll have the conversations. But if you are like, this is the most important thing to me, that I'm like, this, this is probably not a good fit for you. But if you lean towards being affirming and you're trying to grapple with it, you're trying to figure out, yeah, Of course. There's lots of people here who are wrestling with all kinds of issues. So this isn't a, you have to line up with all of just beliefs, otherwise you're kicked out. The covenant wants to encourage flexibility and some kind of discussion on a relational level. But this is an area that if it's just allowed to keep coming up again and again and again and again and again, it, I mean, we now know what happens. It just rips churches apart. And it's better to say, if this is a huge value of yours, if you, if, again, it's a, it's a, If three people came in and they said, we're a throuple and we're monogamous within the context of our relationship, but there's three of us and we expect you to honor that and to not preach against adultery the way that you've been talking about, I would just be like, if that is a line in the sand, that's super important to you. Like, this is not going to work out. I'd love for you to stay here and learn, but I'm not, we're not going to be starting to wonder like, oh, what about like monogamous caring throuples? It's just not going to happen. Shouldn't we just love, to love everyone? Yes, but the traditional view is not unloving. It's not unloving to have convictions. It can be unloving how you express them, but convictions and saying, I believe that sexuality should only be expressed within a male-female marriage relationship, that statement is not unloving. Isn't this an agreed to disagree issue? I know I said it was five minutes. I meant 15 or 20. So I, that's how, that's pastor speak. That's pastor speak for gotcha. Two more. Um, isn't this an agree to disagree issue like infant baptism uh, or should women be involved in leadership in the church? Some churches contend against those things. Uh, scripture always considers sexual immorality to be a pretty serious issue. I know sometimes you get the bullying from people on the other side, why are Christians so obsessed with sex? And it's kind of like, well, it's kind of like a big deal in the Bible. There's massive amount of harm that comes from not stewarding our sexuality and our bodies well. And the harm isn't just immediate, it's concentric in terms of society. We have people now for whom, we have a generation now growing up for whom pornography is normalized, Having a high body count, that's the language, which means having sex with people is normalized. And my high body count, for those of you of a different generation, I'm not saying something like seven or eight. I'm talking 70 or 80 people by the time you're 25. That, to me, is a facilitation of sexual trauma. There's no way you can convince me that that is actually going to be, that's liberating, that allows you to kind of express and open up into your fullness. I mean, we have an entire generation that we've created uh, an ecosystem of sexual trauma for, in the name of, well, as long as it's consensual, it's fine. As long as you're being safe, physically, getting tested, who's anyone to judge you? Like what, we're not hurting anybody, are we? Mm. Skyrocketing rates of anxiety and depression. I, you know, social media plays a part, but part of the reason why social media plays a part is it's the pipeline to a pornified culture that normalizes these things. We're not designed to live this way. And so when the Bible talks about sexual immorality, it speaks in a very clear way. And agree to disagree issues will come up in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, but sexual sins are never treated in the Bible, old or new, never treated as agreed or disagree, ever, ever, ever. Now, does that mean that we talk about them every single week. No, I don't. But when they come up, we don't pretend like, well, tomato, tomato, like, you know, it's not a huge deal. Like, and we kind of cowardly shrink away from it. No, you make clear what scripture is made clear. Whenever sexual sins are mentioned, they're treated as profoundly serious and non-negotiable. Even the early Romans saw this pattern, one of the most dominating patterns of expression from the early church. And I, should have looked this up because I don't have which one, but you can probably Google it. You'll, you'll be able to find it is one um, might not have been an emperor. might've been Josephus. I can't remember anyways, but it's someone just search the quote. It's saying we as Romans were stingy with our money, but we're promiscuous with our wives." But I've noticed this pattern among the Christians. They're stingy with their wives and they're promiscuous with their money. The first pagan culture that Christianity inhabits was confused by the standards of sexuality that that community held. And again, often, and I would argue, for the protection and enhancement of safety and pleasure of women. And they were also confused by how generous the early church was. Even being generous to people who weren't a part of their church. Rome was like, that is whack. That is like (laughs) completely backwards to how we live. Um, I agree with this in principle, so the convictional thing, Jeff, but I feel like I need to adopt a fully affirming stance in order to maintain relationship with my friend or family member. This reaches kind of like the DEF CON level with trans individuals who might say something and sort of there's a parlance in the trans community. Even if you disagree with, with trans ideology and stuff, if you've got a kid who's saying like, I'm going to kill myself if you don't uh, affirm my situation. Wouldn't you rather have a trans kid than a dead one? And I will say this as clearly, but as carefully as I can. I know some of you are in this situation. I might find myself in this situation one day. Don't let anyone ever take you emotionally hostage this way. Don't let anyone ever take you emotionally hostage this way. It's manipulative, it's deeply immature, and it's dysfunctional. If anyone in your life threatens to harm themselves because you hold a theological, theological conviction with a caring, loving posture, they are emotionally and or mentally unstable and they actually need help. What they don't need is your fearful compliance that will not help that commits you to lying for the rest of your life be clear and kind be courageous and caring but remember that christians don't adopt or reject convictions based on threats from other people that's what cults do If someone, I, 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 I think I can say this, but I'm willing to have pushback. If someone can't handle the fact that I don't believe, for example, in modern gender ideology, that is their problem, that's not my problem. if someone is willing to harm or even kill themselves because I won't reflexively affirm modern gender ideology, that's not on me to solve. There are deeper and more profound issues happening at the level of heart, mind, and soul. So we are committed as a church to celebrating and upholding biblical standards while showing care. LGBTQ individuals, families, community. And this means my commitment and our commitment should be to develop an increasingly mature set of theological convictions while maturing into a relational posture. So that even if people wanted to throw stones through that stained glass and to write up and say, oh, they're a bunch of bigots and homophobes and whatever else, transphobes, blah, blah, blah there would be non-Christians in the community who could say, yeah, that doesn't stick. Like, I don't agree with their views, but they this is coming from an honest place. And there's not a shred of um, genuine homophobia there at all. So our task is to learn as a church to speak the truth in love, so that as we do, as Ephesians says, we will grow to mature in every respect, grow into the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So may God give us courage and grace for this task in all things. Amen. I'm going to invite Lydia and Bobby Joa. God, give us grace. This is a live issue for so many of us. Guide us, Holy Spirit. Help us to be clear and kind, courageous and caring. Protect us as we seek to do your will. Amen.